I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, May 11th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a chance to record is hearing arguments about a new law some say violates the rights of Jackson residents. Then, a national group that advocates for foster care children expands operations in Mississippi. Plus, a look into how hospitals are scoring across Mississippi for patient safety. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A Hines County Chancery Court judge is considering if House Bill 1020, a new law, violates the Mississippi Constitution. Among the three plaintiffs in the case is Jackson resident Ann Saunders. She's represented by Mississippi Center for Justice and alleges the law dilutes her voting power. What does it mean to you, if anything, that residents of the city of Jackson have an illegitimate court and residents of other counties have legitimate courts. Well, it adds insult to injury. Um, it, it, um, again, says that I'm being asked to pay for something that us, us, is, is usurping my right as a citizen. It is uh, usurping the right that the great state of Mississippi has written in its constitution that I have. And for some reason, my city is being singled out, my county is being singled out for something other than um, a legitimate access and, um, uh, 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 to the court and a legitimate reflection of a court that represents our vote. Paloma Wu is an attorney with Mississippi Center for Justice and is arguing the case before Judge Dwayne Thomas. She speaks with our Lacey Alexander about how the law could affect the rights of Hines County residents. We do have a lot of work to do, and this, um, you know, hopefully will resolve itself um, soon um, so that we can all get to doing, you know, the rest of the work that I know that our plaintiffs want to do and that we want to be a part of. We've had a long day today. We've been here since 9 a.m. I know a lot went down, but what surprised you or stood out to you most in the past few hours in that courtroom? I felt like the the legal arguments that we make can sometimes seem technical, but um, they all came alive when the plaintiffs came on the stand. I mean, telling their stories, 
their, their personal experience of what it means to vote for them, how many generations their family has lived in Jackson, why they will, you know, will never leave Jackson, you know, what it means to them to be able to, what, are they, what they care about when they vote for a, a Hines County Circuit Court judge, what values do they have, what information do they want to know about those judges. So um, all of that really came you know, forward during this hearing, and we're really um, glad that our plaintiffs had the chance to tell the judge um, why they brought the case. You've got a lot of legal experience. Tell me from your opinion, where you think the judge is standing right now? That is something, I am from a gambling town, and I do not place bets at this time <laughs> at all. We are just very glad that our plaintiffs got to have their say today. And so he did ask for some extra stuff by noon tomorrow. He said he'll give a decision on, I believe, the Supreme Court judge tomorrow. Where else is this court going to go? Where else should we be watching for updates on this situation? Well, keep watching, definitely, because we're going to find out who the um, ultimate defendants are going to be um, on uh hopefully tomorrow and we may appeal that decision if it's you know if we feel like it's going to impact our plaintiffs being able to get the remedy they need but we'll have to see how that turns out and then um we're gonna you know we ask them to make a preliminary court order to put a pause on this bill while we fight out the merits of the case in like you know in a trial so um that will be um you know to come so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of more work to be done, but today our plaintiffs got to talk to the judge and in their own words explain why they brought the case, which was the most you know the most important um, um, part of today for us. One last question for you. Tell me why it's important to have Jackson residents be a part of this conversation. Jackson residents brought this case. We are legal advocacy organizations and we work for them. So they are shaping you know, how to explain to the public what the most important things are by explaining what the most things are to, important things are to them. They, they talk about raising, you know, their families in Jackson and um, wanting to have a say in the judges that determine what their rights are, what their neighbors' rights are. You know, if a business that they live next to gets in a lawsuit with somebody else, they want to know that the person that who's deciding the rights in those cases are people that um, ran put a campaign on that told people what their qualifications are and most that they won by a majority vote so like they feel very strongly about um why you know their judges should be elected and why they should um only legitimate courts should be in jackson and um their voice is by far the not only the most important but really the only you know important um with regards to what the impacts are to people in jackson and you know the Attorney General Council said today that HB 1020 is part of a larger line of legislation that is meant to address what they see as problems in Jackson. So this is a part of a larger puzzle that people who care about what happens in Jackson need to unpack, and that's going to be a marathon, not a sprint. Paloma Wu is an attorney with Mississippi Center for Justice. She's arguing in court a new law violates the state constitution. Coming up, a national foster care youth organization is expanding operations in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful 
Spite on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. MPB Think Radio. Whatever your taste, news, music, storytelling, or how-to shows. Whatever your city, Gulfport, Fernando, Meridian, Greenville. However you want. Radio. Smart speaker. Smartphone app. MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A group that helps children in foster care as they navigate the legal system is beginning new operations in Hines County. The area's courts have been highly backlogged, slowing down custody cases. Court-appointed special advocates, known as CASA, is a group that links volunteers with children in foster care to help ensure they receive necessary support. Our Mike McEwen speaks with Laura G., Executive Director with CASA of Hines County. She talks about helping children in the Jackson metro area. Here in Mississippi, there are seven other organizations, and they really started to pivot in the last few years to look at the capital in Hines County and wanting to bring CASA to Hines County. So a group of stakeholders gathered along with youth court um, judges and, and personnel and really just started to, to look at the opportunity to bring CASA here to Hines County. So we have just received our national CASA status in the last month and a half or two months here in Hines County. So we look to um, following the footsteps of the other locations in Mississippi just really blossom and grow and um, advocate for the children here in Hines County. And in the process of I suppose, the court cases with the young people that the organization helps. How do these special advocates compare to, say, social workers? So the, the unique thing about CASA advocates is, is that they are um, volunteers that are highly trained. Uh, trained. They get to 30 hours of rigorous training before they're sworn into the youth court. But since they are volunteers, they're able to speak on behalf of the foster children. We typically work with foster children. Um, and advocate for what is in their best interest and really serve as their voice. So because they are not employed by an agency or hindered in some of the parameters that maybe some of the employees would be, they're able to speak and be a non-biased or unbiased voice for the children in Hines County. One of the things that we see as far as uh, for CASA is they are also one of the continuing factor. You know, there's so much revolving door and turnover in some of the employment so a CASA volunteer is often the stability force for a child in foster care. How much weight is given to their recommendations when a judge is considering a case? Yeah, that's um, a good question. And each case is done by, you know, individual basis. Um, and the judge um, hears all of the recommendations on equal footing. So, uh, you know, there are court reports. And because our advocates are required to see their children or their cases once a month, the relationship is very strong with that connection place. Um, advocates are only allowed to have two cases at a time, so they don't have an overburdening, um, you know, weight that they're carrying. So, therefore, because of that, their their reports are, are given some, some consideration and heavy weight to that. Are there any issues or perhaps situations that fall through the cracks with young people who need help in these sort of situations? You know, the foster care system is, nationally um, a, a struggle, um, not just here in Mississippi, but that is a, you know, a, a problem across the nation. Um, the, the burden of the amount of children in foster care, 
the um, taxing weight on both the court system and the foster care system is obviously going to always be a struggle. And, you know, CASA just sees itself as being one step to help um, maybe prevent those from falling through the cracks. Are there any trends that your organization has noticed over the years in Mississippi in general or Hines County in specific? Well, Hines County, we're new, so we um, we haven't been able to see trends and we are just a brand new launch of CASA. But nationally, the, the statistics and the research show that children who have a CASA worker are less likely to re-enter um, foster care. They're more likely to succeed. They have a higher graduation rate, uh, and they're also more likely to have uh, a permanency in housing. So those trends would carry on um, throughout the other branches of CASA in the state of Mississippi. Hines, we hope to have that same outcomes, but with us being a new launch, we're not able to, to speak to that. And I believe you said in the beginning of the interview, before your organization was able to, I guess, establish itself here in Hines County, there was a lot of attention paid to the capital and to Hines County. Could you go a little more into that? Sure. Um, so nationally, the state of Mississippi has been a focus of national CASA across the United States, um, and they are really wanting to um, you know, change some of those statistics and those numbers of children in foster care and the length in foster care. Um, Hines County has about 180 kids in Hines County foster care currently as of this month. And so just looking at those counties that have a large population of children in foster care always becomes a point of, of turning. Now, uh, Hines County Youth Court has done a great job of really working um, to ensure these children have permanency and stability and safety and, and causes another one of those avenues that Hines County Youth Court has asked to partner with them to continue that trend so that each child has a voice um, in the courtroom. And why was Mississippi a uh, state of focus for the national organization? Um, they looked at count, uh, states that had high, high numbers and just wanted to see where they could implement CASA. CASA is only in seven counties in the state of Mississippi. Um, whereas some of our other state counterparts may have CASA in more regions, our our local um, our state only has it in seven seven counties. Their national CASA is wonderful to work with. They are very supportive um, and have really guide, um, guided the, the stakeholders and the board of directors in every aspect of Hines County CASA. They really worked to ensure that you know that, that we were opening and that we were able to be fiscally stable and be able to um, persevere. They have financially helped support the start of uh, Hines County CASA. They have provided resources and training and very much um, involved in trying to see this be a successful um, branch. And so now that the office is opening here in Hines County, could you talk a little bit about what the timetable is as far as beginning to work within the youth court here? So we currently have an office in Hines County Youth Court, um, so we are here. We are hoping to have advocates trained and in the courtroom as early as in June. They will start their 30 hours training, and we hope to have them sworn in through Judge Colin Hicks and able to pick up cases in June. We, our first goal is to, to roll out um, this year a minimum of 30 volunteers with a goal of eventually having every child in Hines County having an advocate. How did you become involved in this work? That's a great question. I actually was a foster parent. Um, I fostered 22 children 
and adopted two children out of the foster care system and really saw the benefit um, of a CASA worker. Our children are from another county. Um, and so I was just able to see the benefit of CASA being involved in that. I am a licensed clinical social worker, so I was very familiar with CASA and the role. And when I was able to personally receive the impact of that, I decided that this is um, the next place that I would like to be involved. And so that's kind of where I involved with CASA. Laura G. is executive director of the foster youth group CASA in Hines County. Coming up, a look into how hospitals are being scored across the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi Public Broadcasting Summer Learning Family Fun Day returns to the Jackson Convention Complex Saturday, June 17th from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Education and health-related vendors from across Mississippi will be on hand to provide resources for fun summer learning. Enjoy activities, book giveaways, meet MPB and PBS characters, and catch a live show from Move to Learn. Register at education.mpbonline.org. Sponsored in part by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Hospitals across the state are being scored and how safe they are. No hospital received a failing mark. There was a lot of variation among health care providers. The scores were provided by the LeapFrog Group an organization that focuses on preventing needless patient errors. Our Lacey Alexander speaks with Tim Moore, president and CEO of the Mississippi Hospital Association, about what these scores mean for Mississippians. Well, I think all hospitals um, coming out of the pandemic have seen challenges, and, and those challenges are based on a number of things and, and uh, the, the extreme circumstances of which they've had to conduct business over the last couple of years. Um, the the stretches in staff, um, the um, the difficult ability to gain additional supplies and things like that, just a, a, a perfect storm, so to speak, to try to operate a hospital. Um, the um, something I think is important for everyone to know that hospitals have been one of the number one industries in in, uh, in the world to focus on quality all the way through because actually that's what we do. Uh, the, the quality and the good outcomes that a patient has is our business. That's, that's what we try to make sure happens. So um, there's a lot of different things that go into the quality matrix. Uh, I know when you, when you go online and you say, okay, I want to I look at my hospital and look at the scores on my hospital, there are a number of different systems that do that. Uh, hospital compare age caps. Um, there's just there's on and on, and of course, Leapfrog is the one that we're talking about here. If you if you go back and look, many times, uh, matter of fact, if you compare uh, four of those systems, rarely will you find a hospital or health system that gets number one on all four of them. There's so many variants in how they're calculated, and the statistical calculations and algorithms that they use are all different. So uh, I think one of the big things is we need to watch very closely at, at really what information we're getting and then kind of recalibrate recalib- that to what we're trying to learn about the hospital. 
So hospitals of all sizes were on this report. Some of the smaller hospitals, some of the bigger hospitals. Do you think in rankings like this, size matters? Do you think these small hospitals that maybe are a little bit more easier to manage get maybe a little bit of an extra privilege there? Well, you know, in, in one of the issues we did find in uh, during the pandemic, and uh, from a quality perspective, people learned a lot from a quality perspective in the pandemic because you had to get very innovative in, in how you made things work and how you made sure quality was still there. They saw, uh, in many cases, a lower degree of effect from labor, from, from the loss of, of nurses or, or other, other uh, uh, personnel in the hospitals. So that certainly has an effect on it. We, we know that um, the, the number of people that are touching a patient a day has an effect on the quality. Uh, whether it's perceived or it's actual quality, but the touch in the patient makes a difference. In our smaller hospitals, if they did not lose key staff during the pandemic, then they would have been able to kind of handle that situation better. It's also pretty much proven if you're bringing in staff from outside, if you have contract staff, and, and this is not to say any of those are bad nurses or bad folks, that, that's not what I'm getting at. It's knowing the system, knowing the hospital, knowing the medical staff. Things are done different in different hospitals. So there may be indicators that may be varied because of a lack of understanding of how things are done in a particular hospital if you've got new people coming in all the time. So that's just a, uh, and probably a common sense that that, that would be a, a factor that would create some issues. Um, as I mentioned, a lot of things were learned uh, on how to staff and how to try to determine better ways to see that the patient was getting exactly what they needed when they needed it. So I think you'll see continued growth from a quality metrics going forward. Um, if if anything, and it, it's hard as as tough. And, and strenuous as the pandemic was, it's hard to think anything good will come out of it. But there are some good things, uh, good things like innovation and, and looking at, hey, you know, this is a better way to measure quality. Um, and I think that's a key indicator in itself is looking at what those quality indicators are. CMS, uh, a number of their systems all modified what they were doing or did not count those quality indicators as a result of the effects of the pandemic. LeapFrog, as I understand it, did not. They stayed with their same model and compared it through the pandemic. That gives you a little bit of skewed numbers in itself. To be, you have to realize when we go through a, a, uh, a pandemic of magnitude that we did, we hadn't seen in 100 years, it's going to have effects on how care is delivered. Right. So I, I think that's part of, part of the discussion. So when you look at these numbers, which I'm sure you do, do you see a certain part of the state or a certain aspect of these hospitals or even maybe a hospital particularly that's improved the most the past few years? You know, I'll say that, uh, and it's been pretty much uh, widely mentioned, um, Columbus uh, Baptist and uh, Memorial Baptist Columbus has certainly been uh, at, the, at the forefront uh, year after year. They, they have just done a phenomenal job. And I think we all probably need to sit down and talk to them and say, hey, guys, how are you all doing this? This is, this is you're really doing good. Uh, and that's something to be proud of. You, and, again, you mentioned there were a number of A's on there that are all focusing on how do we better take care of our patients. And that, that doesn't mean anybody that falls lower on the scale is not doing the exact same thing. One thing in hospitals you can count on is they don't wake up every morning Try to figure out how are we how do we do less quality today? <laughs> That's just not what we do. Uh, 
uh, it, it's like um, it'd be like a pilot getting on a, a, a jet about to fly away and not check everything to make sure he was going to land safely. Hospitals do the same thing, and they're focused constantly on doing no harm to patients. So. And one last question on that grading system. We only had one D, and it was that Biloxi Hospital. What do you think that that staff can do better to get a better grade next year? You know, I, I really don't um, have any answers for that. Uh, that would have to be within the hospital and, and letting them look. And I'm sure they are. I'm sure they're focusing. Remember, too, a, a lot of these indicators are from a couple of years back. So in most every case, when a facility sees indicators that are not favorable, they're already working on them before we see them because they see them internally before anybody on the outside does. And, and they start working to try to correct those and improve all of those indicators immediately. So and I'm sure that's been the case with, with anybody that's not an A. And look, the struggle is just as real trying to maintain those A's, okay? Uh, it doesn't just happen. So there's a lot of work, a lot of teamwork, a lot of effort from, from staff, from uh, folks at the bedside to people in accounting. I mean, it, it's everybody's job to try to make sure that uh, the quality is everything it can be. Tim Moore, president and CEO of the Mississippi Hospital Association. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.